You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Uchechi Chinuri. Uchechi is a writer, podcaster, and content creator currently known for her work as a panelist on The Grapevine and co-host of Run the Tape podcast, which has become New York's premier podcast dedicated to music discovery in the hip-hop landscape. While Uchechi is fully entrenched in a variety of creative spaces, like many 26ers, she originally started out on another path, one that most would consider a much safer route. But she chose to follow her passions and in the process has become a unique voice in various forms of media. So without further ado, here's her story. Please enjoy. Uchechi, welcome to the December 26th podcast. Thank how you are for you? having me. Thanks I'm good. For being I'm here. good. So let's just talk about how the rest of us are like all casual today. So <laughs> I didn't even put on my real like shoes. And you rolled in with these fly oh my God. fluorescent <laughs> snakes. Is that snake skin or alligator? It's, I don't even know. I think I would, but I would call it snake skin. skin. That's yeah, what I'm going yeah. with. Boots. Just killing the game right now. Um. So you know what it was? I thought it was going to be a nice, crisp winter day. And I was just like, oh, let me throw on this, like... And I try to always, like, balance it out. Yeah. Throw on a sweatshirt dress and then I was like, the boots. Yeah, those, those And boots then I stepped outside and it was snowing. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> it's too late for me to change. So here I am. But, um... No, I love a I love a good boot. I love yeah. a good thigh high boot. I packed them, so mine were suede and uh, snakeskin. But I just never actually put them on because you know you can't <laughs> see them on camera. Facts. But it didn't it didn't exactly happen today, but yeah. So, so now what's funny is that like on the grapevine when people come because you can only see us from the mm-hmm. waist up. So when people come, they're like they look at our feet and they're like, oh, you guys are wearing heels. Like Ashley will have like you know fly ass sandals, mm-hmm. um, feathered like you know heels, and people look down. And they're like. We can see your, we, like, you have heels on. Nobody sees them. And we're like, I mean, this is a whole production. Everything's done. Right. <laughs> sure. Head to toe. So, and I think that's like kind of like, I just have no, I moved through life. Yeah. And I think for the first probably 18 months of the show, that was exactly who I don't know when it switched. I still bring them and sometimes I'm feeling fancy, um, you know, and I'll put them on. But often, too, this we like raw spaces. So mm-hmm. temperature's not right. So I'm mm-hmm. like, OK, I'm just keep my Uggs on since we're going to be No, I understand. Day. There's been plenty of times I've taken off my shoes. and like, this is a lot. I'm tired. Yes. Or like I have um, the Adidas slides on the side mm-hmm. just to sometimes you got to. It's not every day. Sometimes you can <laughs> chill. Right. But yeah, I'm definitely loving. Thank these you. That you have Thank on. you. So let's jump into your story. <laughs> Who is Uchechi Chinyura? Okay, Uchechi Chinyura is, she is a creative. Mm-hmm. Um, she is an older sister. She is a daughter. She's a friend. Um, depending on where she is in her life, she's a partner. Um, she's a podcaster, uh, a lover of freedom. So, yeah, that's how I would call myself. Um, my name means will of God. And then my, so I use my middle name as my last name. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chinyere also means gift of God. So I would consider myself a gift of God and the will of God. So whenever I work, I work knowing that it's meant to be. Those, that's a great name. The <laughs> great name to have, right? You can't, I feel like if you have that name, you can't move through life trying to will things to happen that are not the will that God has for your life when you have that kind of name. <laughs> it's really hard. I almost, sometimes I feel like my mom set me up for failure mm-hmm. um, because it's like, it can't, it's not going to happen if it's not meant to be, yeah. no matter how much I force it no matter how much I want it to be. And you would think that my mother would understand that being that she gave me the name, but... (laughs) (laughs) You know, parents have their own agenda. Exactly. She was just like, oh, so will of God means 
for you specifically, not my will. I'm like, yes, not your will as my mother. God's will. You're, and sometimes those two don't collide. I don't know if you realize that, mm-hmm. but yeah, she's learning slowly. So since you mentioned being a creative and a lover of freedom, that may not jive, I'm, I'm suspecting, with the way you grew up and your Mm-mm. upbringing. So tell me a little bit about your childhood and your family dynamic. Um, so I'm first generation um, Igbo, Nigerian. Um, so we're from the southeast of uh, Nigeria. I'm the oldest of seven children. Wow. So my father actually went to college here. He came here in 70, 72, right after the right after the Newark riots. Mm-hmm. He came right after that. <clears throat> he went to Rutgers University and then uh, went back and forth to Nigeria for a while. He actually grew up in Cameroon. Mm-hmm. So he didn't know Nigeria too well until he became an adult. And then he went back and forth. And then he met my mom along one of these, um, when he, on one of his trips back. My parents are the quintessential Cinderella story. Mm-hmm. See each other, meet each other. We must get married, get married two weeks later. And uh, here we are 35 years really? later. Yeah, they, my father saw my mom and was like, that's my wife. Can that just happen now? Anyway. I, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so, yeah, they get married. This is 85, 80. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they get married. My Because my, my, my mom told my father that she wouldn't leave Nigeria unless she was married. So there's so, because he was like, oh, I'll just file papers mm-hmm. for you and you can come over. And she was like, I'm actually not going anywhere until I have a ring. And he was just like, well, get married. So they got married. Wow. Um, <laughs> so they get married. Um, he files for her. I think back then it took two years to complete all the paperwork after marriage. And she came here so that we can come here legally, no problems and stuff like that. So she came in 87. Um, and I was born in 88, June of wow. 88. Yeah. Wow. So and then uh, we gr- I grew up in Newark. Um, I grew up in hindsight. I realized how um, that it was rough, mm-hmm. that Newark was rough. Um, we didn't grow up with a lot of we didn't grow up with money at all, actually. But my parents are very good at sheltering us. And um, there is a great privilege having two parents, two parents who genuinely like each other. So uh, we didn't live in a in a volatile environment mm-hmm. um to for us to realize the extent of the world around us um my parents didn't allow us to go outside without their permission like we couldn't pass the gate like they allowed us to play outside but we weren't allowed to go past the gate we weren't allowed to go to the store by ourselves go to like the library by ourselves it was very much like we'll take you we didn't take the bus to school until about high school and then like it was very much so like here are your siblings you have to take care of them um you you are responsible for them if anything happens um my father um, started a lot of businesses. My mom was a nurse. It's still, she's still a nurse. So there was always a parent around, mm-hmm. along with some elder uh, relation. Um, my grandmother lived with us. Then my so my paternal grandmother and maternal grandmother both lived with us. My father's several of my father's uh, siblings lived mm-hmm. with us. Um, family members consistently came through our house. We were that house that like whenever somebody needed somewhere to stay, um, <laughs> we were that house, despite the fact that my mom by this time had like five children. Oh everybody gosh. was just like, oh, like you need a place to stay. Go and talk to, you know, give my parents names. And then somebody would show up at our door mm-hmm. and it would be somebody who just came from Nigeria, somebody who just got kicked out of like, you know, somebody else's house. I know I had an uncle who had just come out of prison and wow. he stayed with us. Um, so that was kind of the, the household that I lived in. Um, my parents extremely religious devoutly they go to mass every day mm-hmm. every day every day devout catholics and um we were raised like that all baptized all uh first reconciliation first uh, communion confirmation all those things expectation is for all of us to get married in the catholic church um, <laughs> and you got your thigh out over here <laughs> <and everything. laughs> so like ext- like it 
really my mom struggles with me. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Um, she struggles with me in a lot of ways because, you know, for a long time I was the um, I was that I was the perfect Ada and Ada's first daughter and Ibo. Anything you need me to do. I, d- I really argued with my parents. Um, I rarely talked back. I kept my siblings from doing the same thing. Um, when I was uh, two, or when I was like a toddler, my mom called me her shadow because I would, wherever she went, I'd go. Mm-hmm. If I couldn't, I immediately took on the role as mother. So she assumed that this is going to be like smooth sailing for the rest of her, like, you know, for the rest of her life that she had the perfect daughter. If the rest of them didn't work out, fine. But she has she the, was good with you. She right? has that perfect like first daughter. And I have uh, six sisters. So. Oh, my gosh. It's all. Yeah. So. Girls. Oh, sorry. Five sisters. I'm oh, counting myself. Five yeah. sisters and um, one brother. OK. So she's just like, if she can figure it out, the rest of them will figure it out. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, and she we she would run into. And the thing with being the oldest is that you my parents are more likely to you're parents are more likely to run into problems with the other children right? because they have a little more space to do the things that they want to do. Whereas, um, and they don't feel the brunt of consequences because many times it's visited upon the eldest child. And um, that's what would happen. I would be the one who would get reprimanded for the behavior of my siblings. It'd be like, you know, why is your sister doing this? So why is your sister doing that? So I'd have to be the one to go back and be like, you can't do this, can't do that. And... So for my parents, it was that, especially my mom, somebody who grew up with all brothers, didn't really have a sister till she was almost 20. Wow. She thought that I was going to be like, it was great. Like she saw me as her best friend. Then we got to like, and I think I got to college and I'm like, no, because we're, we can't be best friends <laughs> because you have made it clear that you're my mother, which right. is fine. But um, yeah, because I was, I, I learned, I've always seen my parents as human, but I realized that Many parents want their children to be an extension of themselves, Absolutely. want to live vicariously through their children and things that they could not do. They expect their children to do it and they get very and the disappointment sets in when that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So it gets very difficult to allow your child to live their lives because that's not what you wanted for them. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And so as I got older and I realized that a lot of the things that my parents believed, I didn't believe. And I started to create and, it, and I'm, I would call myself a late bloomer because I don't think I really stepped into who I was completely. So maybe my mid 20s, late 20s mm-hmm. and then fully kind of in the past couple of years, I've been fully expressing myself. And it's come in various ways. It's come in piercings and tattoos and like and it's never been a rebellious form. It's genu- genuinely a form of, uh, you know, um, showing creativity. And my parents are like, what is this? You know, I remember the first time my mom saw my one of my tattoos. It was because I went to the emergency room. I had gotten really sick. I had gotten like a, a stomach virus and she was helping me change. And then by this, I had been hiding for years. Like when I my 19, I started getting tattoos and I had been hiding this for years. And it must have been like, I must have been like 28. And I went to the hospital with her and I, cause she, I needed a ride there. And so she's helping me get into like the hospital gown and she just gasps and I'm like what is I'm like what happened what happened she's like what is that and I'm like what are you talking about and she was just like oh Chachi so you've let somebody decimate your party I was like oh Oh, God. <laughs> the level of like dramatics and gem- exaggeration. Like, she, yeah. like the doctor ran, like the nurse, I think it was a nurse, runs out and is just like, oh my, is everything okay? Is everything okay? Because she thought I had passed out. And I was just like, she found my tattoo. <laughs> nurse, 
like runs back to the station because she wanted to scream. Like she's like laughing at the station and she's like cracking up. I think the nurse is gotten in and she's like, I completely understand. Oh, she knew what was up. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, like that's kind of like my, that was the life I grew up in. I grew up in, and then, so I had on one side, I have this like very like uh, Catholic, evil, strict um, upbringing. And then the other side is I'm growing up in the midst of Newark. Like mm-hmm. well, this is like growing up in late nineties, late early 2000s, um, I'm growing up in a city that has um, super black, right? super black, but is also experiencing still kind of like healing from the riots and healings from the things that happened after it. And he um, dealing with uh, um, a mayor who had been um, embezzling money for mm-hmm. years. So like I'm growing up in a city that is really, it really impacted who I was. But at the same time, for a long time, I was ashamed to be from Newark. Really? I grew up with a lot of my, we were... For a lot of Nigerians, after a couple of years, they'd move away from Newark. They would move into the suburbs, the surrounding suburbs. Mm-hmm. So you would have Maplewood, South Orange, West Orange, um, Montclair. They would move out there. Or South Jersey, they would go to. My parents stayed in Newark. My father was adamant that we would stay in Newark because he was like, it's better for college. You're more likely to get financial aid if you stay in really? the inner city. And he wasn't interested in trying to... And I think my both my parents are, have never really been interested in trying to flaunt a life they couldn't afford. Mm-hmm. So they knew that if they moved to the to a suburb, they would be they were already struggling with the house that we lived in. They weren't interested in struggling with like cause property taxes in Jersey. Are are ridiculous, <laughs> especially when you start talking about Maplewood. West exactly. Orange, and so like, you know, we have family who are like, what are you guys doing? Like you're making your um, you're not you're not doing the best thing for your children. Get them out of these schools. Newark is going to eat them alive. Meanwhile, I think. What made us so successful was going to school in Newark. Mm-hmm. Um, I we all we went to private schools um, connected to our churches, but they were all black. Mm-hmm. The only people that usually were white were like the teachers, mm-hmm. the nuns. I spent my whole life up until college and one year randomly in Pennsylvania, where um, the most difficult thing for me to be was Ebo. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, not black. And then college and then my freshman year of high school where we spent a year in Pennsylvania because my parents were like, okay, maybe we should do this like suburban thing. And then mm-hmm. they took it too far. Went to the Poconos. <laughs> I was about to say, tell me it wasn't the Poconos. <laughs> I was like, my parents, I was why like, do people leave Jersey and go to the Poconos? I was like, this I don't understand extremity, it. like, I don't know why we couldn't just like move to like Chatham. I don't like <laughs> what, but move to like, um, move to Pennsylvania for a year. Um, it was the first time I had ever encountered the, like, the idea that, oh, like, Everybody has a problem with blackness. Yeah. Like it's not just it's not just the stories my father told me. It's not just it's not just like casual racism. This is like genuine um, people telling me that I am not going to amount to anything mm-hmm. because I'm black or um, telling me that I I plagiarized my paperwork because it was too good for it to come to me. And this is like freshman year of high school. It was the worst. And it's just like when you think back and I think back at it, I'm like, this is... This is a time where, like, I mean, this is puberty. This is like, you know, a, a form like a formative right. year. And I'm like, I hate everybody. Like, this is miserable. Um, thankfully, my parents were like, we actually do not like it too. So we moved back to New Jersey. And it wasn't until I got to Rutgers that I experienced it again, where um, being black was just the biggest problem. Yeah. Like... I've always, like gender has always been an issue because I grew up in I grew up in the culture that I grew up in. So like I've always been hyper aware of gender, and I know that I've never been aware of race, but there is a way that race is approached when you are when you truly become 
the like you are the the minority right you are seen as the you are the the speck of vanilla <laughs> and, and you're as, you're the vanilla bean in the vanilla yeah. like you like everybody around you is a white and you are this to them you are this uh you're either this monster or this pet and it could not have helped that your name was Uchechi. I stood out immediately. Mm-hmm. There's never been a time when I have been able to hide the fact that I'm not only am I I'm a black I'm a black person. I'm also um, I have I'm not from this country, or my parents aren't from this country. Because me myself, I'm American, but my parents aren't from here, and it's clear that I'm different. Mm-hmm. And it always showed up. Um, always. Uh, I there's been a few times when people think I'm Indian. They would see my name, really? yeah, and they would be like, oh, and then they would see me, and they're like. Oh, so you're you're not. <laughs> you're not. It's been and I've also known how many places I've gone and I've especially when I got into the job market, I'd put in applications for places and I knew that I wasn't gonna get called back because mm-hmm. um when people can't pronounce my name, they won't they won't bother. Mm-hmm. They'll just throw it away because the idea of trying to pronounce it, trying to deal with it, they won't do it. And my thing, and that I just don't understand, is a simple question. Like that's it. And and to me, I'm more offended when people just butcher it and move on as opposed to saying, can you just tell me how to pronounce it? And why is that so hard? I don't understand why that's so difficult. And that's something I went through mm-hmm. my whole life mm-hmm. where people would either butcher it. People would say, hey, you mm-hmm. like just I don't know what your name is. So you over there or they would give me names. They would just rename make me. Their own names they would make. You, they were yeah. like, we're going to call you. Um, I went to a for when I right before I went to high school, I had went to like an open house for a, a one of the high schools in the area. And one of the seniors was like, oh, OK, your name is Uchechi. So we're going to call you Uch. I'm like, no, Uch. <laughs> I was like, that's not my name. Like, you know? <laughs> that's not my name. And she was just like, no, like, Chachi's just too much. And I'm like, it's three it's syllables. Like, three, <laughs> syllables. <laughs> three syllables, seven letters. It's fine. And I remember thinking, like, I'm always going to argue about my name. Yeah. And that was the case. And I rem- and by that time, I had already felt ashamed of my name. So I was um, giving myself nicknames. I had gone through, I had been gone through this period where I was just trying to find a nickname that that fit me. So I had gone through like several and it started like when I was 10. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I was in eighth grade, I had found something that like fit. And I was just like, you didn't even ask me if I had a nickname. Like, just assigned one. Just assigned one. And I, was, and I didn't I didn't like that. I did not like when people did that to me. Um, and it would always make me seem difficult mm-hmm. because I would be like, that's not my name. Or here's my nickname. Or and then as I got older, here's my name. Because um, I stopped allowing people to call me a nickname. Mm-hmm. And I'd be always vocal about it. And I would be seen as difficult or annoying. For asking someone to call you by, by the name, name. Yeah. that I was given. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was a constant... Um, Constant. I could never. My now. I'm happy for the name. Um, I'm not interested in hiding anymore. But back when I wanted to hide, um, my name always gave me away. Mm-hmm. There was no. There was, and I don't have. Um, like some, a lot of um, non-American blacks, particularly from West Africa, will uh, will use the uh, the English name. Mm-hmm. I didn't have one to like run behind. My father was not interested in giving <laughs> us English names, and I've and for a long time I used to be so frustrated. But now I'm completely grateful because mm-hmm. I completely understand. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned feeling like a late bloomer. I hear this a lot from Black people Mm -hmm. um, who've grown up and really structured, structure strict homes and then have to exist in the world and overcome whatever obstacles they're facing Mm -hmm. um, by standing out for for one reason or another, where you're you're in a sense conforming um, to function at home and have the acceptance at home. And also dealing with being seen as difficult Mm -hmm. when you stand up for yourself. And I think that sometimes manifests itself beyond being a teenager into young adulthood where you may know who you are, but you don't feel fully safe 
to mm-hmm. present that to the world without explanation. Um, and I, and I find having friends, white friends and black friends, my white friends, and even in our early twenties would make decisions without explanation to their parents. My black friends, a lot of them, like it was, a, a, I don't know how I'm going to tell my parents. Right. Like even if you pay your own bills, it's like feeling like you have to be beholden. There's a PowerPoint that has to be yeah. created in order to like present. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'd have friends like, despite not having, not going, not having white people in my life. Mm-hmm. When I got to high college, um, I, that's when I had more white friends than black friends mm-hmm. and they would do whatever they wanted. Whatever. I was amazed. <laughs> <laughs> like oh we're going to spring we're going to spring break um and i and i'm just like oh so how do you guys pay for this because where are you like <laughs> the idea where do you get the money from for spring break oh my mom just gave it to me oh so she knows that you're going to um cancun no nah. so she gave you money <laughs> and you didn't have to explain she has no idea for. where you're going oh my god like I was blown away because every dime that I asked my parents has to be accounted for. Mm-hmm. Every place that I was going, I had to be it had to be accounted for. Um, even going, even being on campus, I remember being so afraid to go out to parties, mm-hmm. to go out to places because I was like, I know my parents are going to find out. <laughs> I know they're going to find me, and I'm going to be in so much trouble. There was one time where I was out with friends, and my parents showed up on campus. Just, just randomly did randomly were you just, at Rutgers North or were you Rutgers New Brunswick Rutgers, so you were in New Brunswick mm-hmm. you weren't even at no so this campus. is an hour away so they, and I don't they know they were parents just like showed up they were like I think they were like going somewhere else and they're like oh I want to stop by <laughs> or like stop by on the way home and it was like 3 a.m. and I was out at a friend's place and they text me like hey can you open the door and I'm just like what and they're like oh we're at the um, front door can you open the door and I was just like uh, what? I'm across campus. And I remember calling. Can I curse here? I don't know if that's okay. Or You can use the, the, the minor ones. Yes. Okay. So I was hauling butt across the hall, mm-hmm. across the, um, you know, across the campus. And I get there and they're at my room. And I don't know how they had got in or got into my room. Or that was like, be, um, so they actually were in the building. So they had, they asked me to open the door. I'm hauling, but I'm just like running across campus and they're like <laughs> and they get upstairs and even though they had asked me that I don't know who opened the door for them because you need to be buzzed in they get inside go up to the sixth floor where I was living at the time and they get there how they opened up my door I'm convinced that my mom had a key created like key made <laughs> I'm convinced because there's like my roommate wasn't there mm-hmm. there my um I'm trying to remember it. And my, and I knew that my RA would never open the door for parents. Like, so you had a roommate, but they still were they planning were, to just barge just, in cause, at some odd hour. What does that matter? <laughs> like, what do these things matter? Like, oh, this is somebody else's child with a completely different life. You have no idea what, like, she could be. No, they're all children. Like, no big deal. So, and I remember getting upstairs and I'm like, how did you get in? Mm-hmm. He's like, where were you? And I'm like, no, like, we have to discuss how you got into my room, how you got into this building. And, uh, my mom was like adamant, like, no, where were you? Oh, God. And I'm like, I was at the bathroom downstairs because this one isn't working. <laughs> the lies that I used to make up on spot. And I used to be like this. And I think around like even into my mid 20s. And after a while, I was like, this is ridiculous. Right. Why? Because I don't. Um, I've always had an affinity for be- telling a story. Mm-hmm. I've been really good at telling a story. I've always been good at like, I call myself a natural liar. Like, not because <laughs> I'm interested in doing it, but because like, I'm. it's, it's so convincing. And I've, mm-hmm. I knew that from a child that I would tell people anything and they'd believe me because I was convincing enough. Um, and I'd always go back and be like, I was actually like lying. Mm-hmm. And, and they would be like, what? And it would be adults. And I, and I found that power fascinating that I could go to adults and I would tell them, 
I'd make up a story in my head and I'll tell it to them and they would believe that it was real. And then I'd come back later and I'd be like, I actually, that wasn't a true story. I just made it up. And they're like, what? So as I got older, it just became uh, a mechanism to like really kind of like deal with how my parents were like very like intrusive and um like they mean well right it's therefore to them it's like a form of love but it was my way of having to deal with like constantly because i knew the truth would cause me more trouble sure. than i needed it to be like you know that you need and i knew that other children or other kids could tell their parents like what it was like how difficult to tell your parents i'm just crossed like i was just some friends with right you know, that's what college life it's is, not a big right? deal right mm-hmm. No, I knew I couldn't tell my parents. So I would just like make up things and it'd be so convincing. And it just like amazed me. And I was just like, but after a while, I was like, this is not supposed to be mm-hmm. like, I'm supposed to be able to say what exactly is happening because like, what if what something does happen to right. me? And so I started telling the truth. And yeah, <laughs> that's when my mom was just like, I don't know you. And I'm like, no, you do. Right. <laughs> what does that look like? Changing the dynamic and sort of reclaiming your power, claiming it for the first time and speaking your truth with parents especially parents like yours, like what does that look like in the beginning? A lot of, a lot of arguing. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of anger comes out. Um, things that you, a lot of things that you never realized bothered you, it bubbles up to the top. Mm-hmm. And then for them, there's this like lack of gratitude. Mm-hmm. We came to this country. We, you know, did, gave you everything we possibly could. And here you are telling us that you want to do whatever you want to do without our input. How dare you? So there's constant clashing. And then because I'm the eldest, it's like you are poisoning the minds of your siblings. Yeah. So then there's the guilt of that. Um, so the first it's it's still an ongoing battle because for a lot, I always say that Nigerians don't see you as an adult until you have children. And even then, it's a it it it's a it, Sometimes it's not a situation. <laughs> yeah, so like some, but usually if you have a child, that's when they really see you as a as a as you know as an adult. Because my we would tell my mom would be talking about somebody and they'd be like forty years old and she's like, oh, you know that young boy. And I'm like, they're not a boy. <laughs> this is a grown man. And she was just like, oh, well, you know, he's not married, doesn't have kids. And I'm like, doesn't mean anything. This is still an adult. And we would have, and it's like conversations like that would happen more often because we would like, you know, I first started doing it where I'd be like, you have to hold my mom accountable for, or my parents for the, for the way that they speak in order so they can recognize that you're not dealing with um, children anymore. You're dealing with adults. And then my siblings follow suit and my mom would just be so frustrated and she'd be so, and my parents would be like that, you know, my father especially would be like, okay, the conversation is over. And I'm like, you cannot end the conversation because it's not going the way you want. And my father was like, this is disrespectful. How dare you guys tell me how to run a conversation? And I was like, all right, it is over. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to backtrack. It's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how it would be. Um, and it would be like the situation of my mom finding that I had tattoos mm-hmm. and making it thinking that it was an act of rebellion when I genuinely wanted it. And I had always been a you know and and i overanalyzed anything everything and overthought everything so when i started thinking about getting tattoos i was like 17 and i before i could even think about it i had did my research and all this stuff so i had always been that person and my mom whenever i would she recognized that whenever i and both my parents recognized that whenever i did something that they that they were that they agreed with they would recognize that i had put thought into mm-hmm. it but it was something they disagreed with it had to have been like a spur of the woman act decision. a rash decision or act of rebellion and i'm like that's you this I was, and that would be the frustration of having to explain myself over and over again and remind them that like the person that I am when you are in agreement is the same person that I am when you are in disagreement. It's just showing up more because um, I deserve to be my own person. Right. 
So how did this manifest in terms of career choices and academic choices for you, this this clash with your parents? Um, what's funny is that my father said when I was four years old, we were driving through Newark and he was dropping me off at school because we I went to I went to preschool in North Newark and um, we live in South Newark. So we'd have to like drive through Newark. And I have always been like a very like I would I read a lot as a kid. I started reading at like two. Wow. And uh, my father was like, oh, like this is great. And he bought like Hooked on Phonics, the Peter Rabbit books, like everything that he could find to encourage this. Um, he did. So by that time, my vocabulary was extensive. Mm-hmm. And I remember at that he told me that I was telling him that I was going to change Newark. That I was going to, he was, I was just like, the mayor's not doing a good job, so I'm going to be the mayor. In fact, I'm going to be the president, and I'm going to be a doctor, and I'm going to be a surgeon, and I'm going to sing and act on top of all of this. <laughs> and I was adamant that I was going to sing, act. I was like, and I'm going to write stories. And my father was just like, let's focus on the medicine. <laughs> right, of course. Like, let's just zero in on this surgeon. Let's forget about everything piece. else. <laughs> but, um, and as I got older, my parents were like, we're going to, you're going to be the doctor of the family. You're going to be the first doctor of the family. My father had wanted to go to medical school, but... um. Coming in as an immigrant, there was, it just wasn't, there wasn't a space for it. My mom was a nurse. So she was just like, we just, I just want my children to follow in my path. Mm -hmm. So whether it be a nurse, whether it be uh, medicine, pharmacy, I'm fine. I just want y'all to continue on that path. And of course it's because these are um, guaranteed, like guaranteed jobs. Like you're bound to make money. You're always going to find a place where you'll need work at. Um, And also it comes with um, people respect it. Right. Absolutely. There's a level of prestige. Exactly. That comes along with it. So, and I was going with it. I think in high school, I realized I don't like blood. How am I going to do this? (laughs) (laughs) And um, so I decided to go into pharmacy Mm -hmm. and my parents were like, that's great. It's fine. You know, pharmacy was actually around the time. I think I went to high school in 2001, 2006. Everybody in was going to pharmacy mm-hmm. school at the at that time the programs for um the two plus the four plus two programs were just popping up yeah. so nobody had to go like the four plus four anymore so you could just go straight into pharmacy school my parents were like this is great get to college get into the pharmacy program at Rutgers get to college fail chemistry the first semester Lord, that chemistry <laughs> chemistry is always the turning point for people like and I was a fantastic student. I had mm-hmm. spent like I had never dealt with failing anything mm-hmm. my whole entire like school career until college. It was the first time I had been I came face to face with failure and I buckled. I did not like I didn't even know what that looked like. I didn't know how to handle it. I was not prepared for it. And I said, I have to get out of this program. Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm failing already. And the thing is, in hindsight, I could have pushed through, but I was like, I don't want to push through. Right. I don't know what, like, what if I failed even more? And I, the crazy thing is, is I did. Because what happened is that I left the program, but I decided I'm just going to go into, I'm going to go into medicine. By this time I had gotten over my, like, your fears of blood. I think I did. But, you know, um, decided that I was going to go into medicine and decided that I was going to become a bio major, which so I went to bio and I'm fail. I'm like doing poorly in every pre-med class. Oh, I'm, I don't think I've, I did okay in orgo, did okay in bio. I had met my match in physics. Mm-hmm. I took physics twice. Got a D both times. Oh, man. Like nothing changed. <laughs> nothing changed. And I'm just like, okay, maybe I should, um, maybe, you know what? Maybe medical school isn't for me. Let's try nursing. Mm-hmm. By this time, by the time towards the end of my like couple my and towards the end of my college career, um, the nursing programs had changed. So now you could do a post back nursing program, yeah. which wasn't like as common before. So I was like, I'm just gonna go into one of these um, nursing programs and get my, you know 
BSN and I'll be fine. Took all of the prereqs for that, started applying and was like, mm, I actually hate nursing. <laughs> I hate this profession. I cannot see myself ever doing it. But a part of me just kept pushing like, no, like this is great. Like it's perfect. It will a lot like it makes a lot of money. You'll be fine. I was like, I don't like it. I never want to do this. I never want to work in a position where I have to take care of somebody because I don't I don't care enough. But um personality wise, I would have been perfect for the medicine, like for the nursing field. Um, but just the idea of having to deal with the personalities of mm-hmm. like and the idea that while nurses actually do everything, um, a lot of we a lot of us give more credit to the doctors and oh, stuff yes, like that. For sure. And I was like, I just can't live with that. Right. <laughs> so um went right back to medicine. I was like, okay, let me just go back to where I started. Graduated from college. Graduated by the skin of my teeth, actually. Um, it's something that a lot of people don't know because they know me as somebody who's super smart. And I'm like, no, I really struggled through college because I decided that I was, I was gonna stick with this pre-med thing and it was making things really difficult yeah. for me in school. Um, so I had actually degree with I had actually graduated with a degree in public health and biology, mm-hmm. a minor in psychology because by this time I had so many classes and I had my last year was supposed to be 2010 but but I still didn't know what I was doing and then to graduate and the the I looked outside and I saw that the job market was trash and I was just like I don't want so I stayed an extra year graduate start working for the health department of East Orange I'm studying for my MCATs my mom um my parent my mom and my dad pay for um MCAT prep program oh boy (laughs) $2,300 they pay for it. I take the course. I have the books, do all that stuff. I leave the health department. I start working at a cancer center around 2012, the summer. I'm scheduled to take my MCAT. I pay for the class. I pay for the exam, put the money down. Two days before, two or three days before the exam, I'm like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I'm, I don't, I'm not interested. I hate this. By this time, I had spent a little of almost a year working in the cancer center. I worked with fellows. I worked with um, um, urologists. I had worked with all of them. I had heard their stories about um, medical school. I had heard their stories about like uh, internships and residencies. And I realized there's nothing about this that draws me to it. There's nothing about it. And the fact that I want to change the world, I was like, I do not have to do it through medicine. Right. I, my parents, your parents right away? my parents, because at the time I was living at home, mm-hmm. my parents are like the day of, they're like, oh, like your exam. I think I left the house and then came back as if I went. <laughs> oh, no. And then like a month later, they're asking for the results. So you didn't tell them for a month. I found it so difficult to tell my parents things. And when I told them, like, my father exploded. <laughs> because it's not just that you didn't take it, it's that they invested a significant right. amount of money in you and preparing I, for this. Exactly. Yes. Because they were like, all right, you're already behind. And their whole thing was like, you're already behind. So we'll do whatever it takes to catch you up. And I was like, I don't want to catch up because I don't want to do this. But I couldn't bring myself to tell them. Mm-hmm. And so finally, I was like, I have to. I have to. I have no choice but to tell them. They're like, so what are you going to do with your life? And I got the bright idea to tell them I was going to go to grad school for epidemiology. Wait, that's not what I expected. I didn't, that's not where I thought this was going to go. Exactly. Epidemiology. Because I could not find, I was like, I have to, for a long time, it was really hard for me to disappoint my parents. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I had been the perfect like first daughter for right. uh, so much of my life that it was so hard to tell them, like, I don't want to do any of this. I'm not sure what I want to do, but I want to f- give me time to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that idea of asking for that grace which should be given to every person, um, was terrifying. And <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to go to school for epidemiology. And they're like, you can get a PhD in that, right? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So they're like, so it calmed them down a little bit. And they're like, okay, so apply. And I applied and I applied. <laughs> and this is not what you want to do. No. Okay, so you no. keep applying. But I think even a part of me was afraid to even step out of the science field because I didn't know what else I was going to do. Despite the fact that at four, I, I saw my talents and I knew yeah. what I was capable of. Um, I remember even there was a quick second in, in, uh, in high school where I was just like, maybe I should be a lawyer. I think I'd, I'd thrive there. My father was like, lawyers are liars. You're not going to law school. <laughs> I was just like, wow, <laughs> that's that on that. And I left it alone. But I was just like, you know, there would be moments where I could see like what, what the possibilities were, but it was just so clouded by everything that was around me. And I think even when I was trying to do the sciences of epidemiology, the reason it came so quick to me, because it was like, what else am I going to do? Yeah. What do I have the capabilities for? I don't know what else I like. What am I what am I able to do? I don't know what else I have that I could call a career. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> so I'm applying to schools. I'm doing all things. I'm still working at this cancer institute and I'm not getting into any program. Mm-hmm. Every program is rejecting me. So I apply again. This time I apply for a different program. Um, I apply for research in law. And I was like, maybe if I switch and I go towards something that seems a little bit more like me, because I had always been interested in research. And I was like, maybe I should do that. Still could not get into mm-hmm. programs. By this time, around this time, I had met Ashley Akunda of the Grapevine. Mm-hmm. I had met her. And we met through a mutual friend and we had met at, I think at the block party, like Spike Lee's block party or mm-hmm. something like that. And she talks, she's talking about how I'm getting a show together and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. And I'm thinking in my head, like all oh, these arts people, like they need, I was just like, how do they survive? And I'm thinking like, none of them have like real jobs. <laughs> and I'm so, and I'm like, oh my God, now I'm eating my words. Um, that's but, hilarious. But I'm just like, and I'm just like, and she's telling me and she's like, yeah, I went to film school. I was like, you went to film school? And she's like, yeah, I'm like, you're Nigerian and you went to film school? <laughs> And she's like, yeah. I'm like, who paid for it? And she's just like, my parents. Like, I'm just like, what? And it blows my mind. And I, But then she's talking about the show. And then she's just like, you know, I think you're pretty good on the show. Do you want to be on it? And I was just like, no, I don't belong on anybody's like show or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's not my place. She was just like, oh, okay. Like, I think you'd be good at it, though. And I was like, no. I was like, this girl doesn't know anything. <laughs> I'm like, what makes you think that I'd be good on this show? Like, I was like, girl, do you know what I do? I was just like, I work, for, I work like, I was like, my job is to deal with patients who have prostate cancer. Um, but then I'm applying. And so in the midst of all of this, I'm applying to schools. I'm not getting in. Gosh. I'm still stuck at this job that I, by this time I hate, like I'm miserable at my job. And I meet Ashley again, the year that Sandra Bland had passed away. Mm-hmm. She had just died, just been murdered, actually. And I had met Ashley through with this mutual friend again at a happy hour. And we're on the train and we're talking. And I, Sandra Bland was one of those deaths that I was like furious about. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going on and on in the streets of like Times Square about how like we should have a right to be who we are. No matter like the police have no right to tell us to tone down or to, you know, and by this time, especially if coming from experience, I was like, nobody has the right to tell me how to be who I want, like who I am. I have nobody has a right to kill me because I am what I am. I'm not going to, you know, lessen myself to make you feel comfortable, especially not a white man. Like I will never do that. We're on the train and Ashley's like, yeah, so this show, because I think in the midst of all of it, she had like stopped doing it and mm-hmm. then she came and I think at around this time, she started working at AOL and was able to have the funds to like yeah. actually do the show. And so she's just like, you know, I'm getting my show on the ground, like up on the ground again. It's been, and I think at this time she had been, like, I had a year under her belt where she's like in the format that it was. And she's just like, you know, I think that she'd be really good. We're shooting in December because I want to say this is like 2014 or 2015. And she's like, we're shooting in December. And I was just like, okay, send me the information. Mm-hmm. And 
maybe, maybe I can do this. I was like, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I can be on somebody's show. So she sends me the information that, so this was September I had saw her. She emails me to remind me. I send her and she sends me the information for that December shoot. I walk into the, I walk into the studio and I'm like, what am I doing here? Where, like, this is not where I belong. I don't have anything. Like, this is not nothing of, you know, what I'm, the path that I'm, you know, supposed to be going. Cause still in my head, it was just like, okay, well, if I can't get a degree in epidemiology, excuse me, research and law, I'll just, you know, I'll just get a, I'll just get like a general public health Mm -hmm. master's and I'll work it from there. Cause by this time I was like, I was also having difficulties in finding new jobs as well too. So I'm assuming that it's because I don't have a master's and all this stuff. Despite having worked by this time, like three or four years in the industry. So I get to this, so I'm at this kind of like feeling really out of place because everybody there is um, some form of creative. Like they're either in film, they're music, dance, um, broadcasting, journalism. And I'm here <laughs> just like feeling super out of place. And then we, and then she puts us on set, puts us on the table and I get on. And it was the first time I had felt like I had belonged. The yeah. minute I started talking and I was like, this, this is it. This is where I never felt like that before. And I got there and I, and I'm like nervous as hell. Like I'm, my, my leg is like shaking on the table. My hands are shaking. I'm sweating. Of course. But I'm like, going on and on as if I know everything and anything. And I'm like, no, this is where I belong. And as the day goes on and every panel I'm on, I'm like, this is it. This is it. And by the time we had had the last panel, I was like, I found my space. The light bulb went off. I found it. And then it only got confirmed by the response I got from people who are like, who's that girl? Like, I really love her. Like what she said about this, what she said about that. Like, I'm really, I believe, like, I love what she's saying. And it was just like, so Ashley came, had me come on at other times. And I was like, I'm really good at this. Like, yeah. I'm really good at this. So how do we, I was like, so how do I do this for a living? How do I change this around? Was it that, that were you asking that question without consideration at that point for your parents and what they might yes. think? So you're just like, okay, this is what I want to do. Full stop. Right. Because as somebody, I like comfort a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, It's probably, it's a, it's a, I know myself, I, I, I know that I like things to be, I like to feel okay. Yeah. I don't like to feel uncomfortable, which is probably one of the worst things <laughs> to deal with when you are on a path to like kind of create your own space right. in the world. Like you have to be uncomfortable, but I like being comfortable. And when I got on set and I saw how comfortable I was and just how like I felt at home, mm-hmm. I, nobody could take that away from me. And I was just like, I think if any, I would say that the grapevine definitely helped me in like, I don't want to say divorce my parents, but definitely divorce myself from the idea yeah. that I had to be who they wanted me to be um, and just be like, no, I need to do this for myself. Like, where can I go or how can I do this in order to be the person that I know I'm meant to be? Mm-hmm. Because like, there's so much more. I have so much to offer and I'm being boxed in. And I think it was around that time I had realized that I do not like the feeling of um, being placed in a mold. Mm-hmm. I don't like the feeling of being um, restricted. I had also learned, and it was around that time I had realized it's like, wow, me and me and authority don't do too well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had and I had kind of mistaken myself as like, oh, I'm super quiet. I'm not. I'm, I don't really talk too much. So um, I do what I'm asked to do. And I, it didn't dawn on me until like I was an adult that it's not that I do what I'm asked to do. It's that if I don't want to do it, I just ignore it. I don't argue with you. I don't. I just ignore it. And I was like. Because I'm not meant to be in these spaces. Right. And so, um, yeah. So I think at that moment I gave up everything concerning grad school. Um, I do want to go back to school, mm-hmm. but I think I want to this time on my own time and my own accord. And I know that when now that I'm, I want to in that way, that the doors are going to open up 
you know, in a way that they weren't opening in the past. So, but um, definitely kind of re like definitely have been on the in the space where I'm more myself because I have found spaces where I can like actually utilize the talents that I thought were meant for medicine. Mm-hmm. I thought were meant for like this this world that um was created for me, but it's actually like best utilized in the creative spaces. Mm-hmm. Um and also made me realize how like how I would like restrict the idea of a creative because when there's creativity even in medicine. Oh, and it's sure. made me realize like it's also made me realize that and just like how um it's definitely changed my just changed my mindset concerning medicine and surgery and like how how we heal people. And so it's definitely like just changed me overall as a person, the way that I view things and kind of just like how fluid all of these things are. Sure. But what does that pivot look like professionally? Because I think a lot of people have come to that realization where they're like, I'm trying to fit into a more traditional, financially stable, professional path. And that's not for me, but they don't know how to make the switch in a way where they can keep the lights on. So have you found um, a way to do that or a happy medium or a way to like kind of feed that piece of yourself, but still conform in a sense to be able to live that comfortable life you're talking about? So I have not. Okay. I'm still, so I left the Cancer Institute mm-hmm. and I'm working for a research and publication company, um, oncology research and publication. Mm-hmm. And it sucks. <laughs> I hate my job, mm-hmm. but, and, it, and I've experienced a lot of things that many people in corporate do as far as race and gender, um, which is why I'm looking for another job. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, it doesn't pay me enough to go through this hell. And that's, I think that for, for a while, you're going to have to um, straddle the sides unless you're willing to deal with not eating. And right. I'm just not one of those people. Um, I was on my podcast. I would be we talking around the tape. We were talking to an artist and she said that, you know, she had to give up her nine to five in order to fully commit to her art. And I was just like, there's two people and there's two types of people in the world. There's people who have been through um, poverty and who are just kind of like, well, I can do it again. I've already done it. And there's all people who are like, I'm never going back to that. Right. And I was like, I am of the latter. I never want to experience some type of poverty that I experienced when I was growing up. I don't want to live like that anymore. I want my comfort, which makes it difficult to a lot of times to like move forward in my writing, um, in creating content. And it's just, I'm, because this is not something that I'm used to, I'm still trying to find the balance. Um, it is... And I'm also learning that it is okay to learn the process as I go along. Because for a long time, when I did realize like, oh, this is what I want to do. I also had the mindset that I had to be perfect and I had to jump in immediately um, because that's that was how this, um, medicine was set up. Mm-hmm. That's how like that world was set up. And this isn't like that. There's not that there's and there's not as much. There's also not as much space to fail. But failure is allowed. Right. And you utilize your failures to create more and continue. Um, if it doesn't work, if this idea doesn't work. OK, bring it back to the drawing board as opposed to like the whole thing is a wash. And I appreciate you saying that because I think sometimes there's this judgment towards creatives or people who have a desire to build a brand or anything entrepreneurially um, when they do kind of remain within the confines of a more traditional job as if like you, you're not about it. Like if you're not fully into it and you have, and I tell 
people who haven't been on both sides of the fence, been through that entrepreneurial thing. I've been through a hybrid. I've been through corporate. You have to know yourself mm-hmm. and the stress and anxiety and the financial instability of trying to build something 100% of the time and not having that guaranteed check, even if even if it's at a job that you hate, it is not for everyone. And it can manifest. The effects of that can manifest in a lot of different ways, namely health issues, right. mental health stuff. You just like, everybody's just not built for it. And there's no harm in doing what's best for you and saying, I'm not about that poor life or wondering if they're going to come cut my lights off. There's nothing wrong with going to a job and slowly building something else on the side. Exactly. And I think that people also forget there's also the possibility, which is where I'm leading, mm-hmm. you know, going to all of this can converge in a yeah. in a setting that pays you regularly. And like, you know, like my dream is to find a job that um, doesn't collide with my creative endeavors and instead coexist with it Mm -hmm. and benefits and everything benefits from each other. I want that type of um, situation in my life. I don't necessarily know. I was like, and maybe after that, I will completely be um, that true entrepreneur that we tend to romanticize entrepreneurship to be. But my dream right now is to kind of create that coexistence between my job, uh, between a career, like a career corporate job and the creative work that I do. I want them to, you know, combine with each other and I want them to kind of like work together. I don't want them to be parallels anymore. I want them to converge. I think that, like I said, we romanticize entrepreneurship. I have, as I was a child of an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. and I have so many friends that are entrepreneurs that work for themselves. And something that I've always known and something that they say that nobody ever talks about is that this stuff is still work. Mm -hmm. It's still work. There are going to be days when you're like, I don't want to do this at all. I don't want to look at another number, you know, concerning how I'm going to break down my budget. I don't want to have to train another person today because it's affecting my ability to like, it's affecting my health because I'm sick and I'm, but yet I have to like, you know, go to the gym and train this person. I don't want to have to do this person's hair. I don't have to do this person's nails. I don't want to have to write the script. I don't want to have to like, you know, send in uh, this, um, I don't want to send in this like business plan, you know, because I'm a consultant, like and all of it because I'm tired. Right. Like, you know, and when you work for yourself, you are on 24 seven. It takes a long time when you can create a situation where you are not working 24 hours Mm -hmm. a day. Where you're making money in your sleep or what have you. Exactly. Staff and a lot of things have to collide at the right time for that to happen. I know plenty of people who had the hustle and the savvy. And the timing was just right. Exactly. Or somebody, they're building something and somebody else came to the market and had more money behind them to market more quickly and dominated. There, there are all these factors. Mm-hmm. And um, it takes a while. It does. There, there are very few people I know who jump into something and it's like, it just takes off in the first year. And usually if it does, it's a flash in the pan that mm-hmm. is not sustainable. Exactly. Um, but in that that runway that you need, it requires money. It requires a level of energy um, and persistence, even on the days that you don't feel like it. Exactly. And I think the one thing, too, that we don't discuss enough, we've talked about on the show, is that life doesn't stop. Like, it does not stop. You get sick. People you know get sick. People die around you. Unexpected bills. Like, all these things happen where... In a normal setting where you like have a nine to five, mm-hmm. it's like, I need to take a few personal days to deal with this. Right. That's not always possible when you're building something over here that's not self-sustaining yet or you can step away. Um, and some people are built for it and, you know, they they make it work, but that's not everybody. It isn't. You know? And I think that we should stop. We should leave people alone to like yes. kind of, because the one, because the whole point of leaving many times corporate America mm-hmm. is to create our own path, to create how we want to do this or how we want to figure mm-hmm. this out. So to make force people into 
now the idea of what we think entrepreneurship mm-hmm. looks like or what that creative space looks like doesn't is no is no better than what they left. Right. And I think that people should be allowed to, however their their journey manifests, should be allowed to do that and just like hope for hope that they are successful so that they can survive and be happy. Right. Because at the end of the day, all of this is to be happy, to fulfill our lives, to fulfill our purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of what um propelled me to be like, I'm gonna leave this medicine stuff alone because that's not my purpose. And and I have to be okay with that not being my purpose. Um, there's something that there's far more. When I was four years old and I said that I was going to write and tell stories. And then I spent, you know, my childhood playing games where I would tell adults these stories. And then I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. This is what, <laughs> this is where I'm meant to go. I've had this my whole entire life. I was that child that lived in books. Like mm-hmm. my parents would drop us off at the library um, and like during the summertime. So we would spend hours there. And, you know, I, I think at like 10, I read, I know why the cage bird sings and I read all, and then I, you know, sat in the, in the, in the library and read all of my Angela's books. And I was like, this is, I was like, how do you write like this? How do you do this? How do you, like, I want to do this. And I think it was in college. No, a little bit after college, I had read the thing, the things around your neck mm-hmm. by Chimamanda Adichie. And I remember getting to the last page and I was just like, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I want to write like this. I want to write the way that she has written. I, I want to impact somebody so much that they close the book and they change their whole lives. Right. And when I think of things like that, there's a feeling that I get that is indescribable. Um, and it's not it's not something that I've ever experienced mm-hmm. reading an MCAT book. <laughs> right. Taking a chemistry lab. You know, I love those things. I'm still a fan of science and research and all that stuff. And that's and it's what I it's what I do really well. And I love it. But it's like those talents are meant to be to fulfill something else. Right. As a fellow bookworm, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you ever like read? I remember it also happens to me reading Maya for the first time where you read a few lines that are just so great that you got to like step away for a second. Like you literally have to put the book down like what masterpiece that I just this that perfect piece of prose. And it's like, where does that come from? You know, and and when you're inspired, I think whatever it is that you're into and what you're passionate about, um, be it literature or mm-hmm. music or film, when you get that feeling, you know, where it's almost like the hairs are standing up, those things are not to be ignored. Right. And I think um, growing up in communities and families in which people worked really hard for what they thought was safe, mm-hmm. right? And as you mentioned, guaranteed, it can be hard to see the thing that really gets your your gears turning as the thing that can create a financially viable life mm-hmm. for you as well. And there is no roadmap yeah. to make that happen. Um, it takes a lot of trying and trying and sort of modifying. And if you don't want to do that um, full time, it also takes more time exactly. right, to figure that out as well. And I, I do have respect for the people that that are in it with both feet. Um, but how is that manifesting for you today, sort of feeding that creativity and the freedom um, that you so love and desire? So I'm on the grapevine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the format that Ashley has offered. She gives us stuff to read and she kind of gives us questions to um so I kind of think about, but when we get on set, the the conversation is organic. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter what question she's placed on the paper. The question, the conversation can go anywhere else. I mean, she's a great host where she tries to bring it back in, but she really gives us a space to talk about it the way that, you know, it's, it's meant to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's why so many like great moments have come from that show. Um, I'm also um, a co-host on Run the Tape, which is a hip hop podcast, which is another thing that I was just like, I don't think I could do this. And I declined <laughs> when I was first asked. And then I thought about, 
about it and I realized that like I'm selling myself short and I have mm-hmm. to like and I this is a space that I can definitely like thrive in and I have and um despite my because one of the reasons I didn't want to go on a show is my parents were super strict and so even music was like very oh, that's what I was gonna ask are you even a, like a hip-hop head <laughs> so as okay. I got older I became one okay. and um but as a kid I had to sneak a lot of things <laughs> a lot of things and it was like kind of like if I got a chance to hang out with my cousins whose parents weren't as straight or like from school picking up pieces here and there um there was a lot of tv moments I missed because we didn't have a tv like we didn't have a tv my father was very I don't think we got cable until I was 16 or Mm -hmm. 17 so I so like there's so many things I had missed and I had to catch up when I was in college and I played catch up a lot but I realized because I was a guest on the show before I became a co-host and I'm sitting on the show and I was like I'm really good at analyzing albums like Mm -hmm. this is like you know I'm really good at figuring out breaking down the music and figuring out somebody's flow is really good and I just sent my co-host a text about like an artist that contacted us and I was like oh the music is okay broke down like the production and stuff like that he was just like well look at you (laughs) Elliot Wilson and I was just like I've always been able to do this I've just been afraid to do it in public Mm -hmm. um you know and so my co-host who is actually created a show is also really great and kind of um fostering a space where he's just like i just want you to grow because yeah. he's like i see it i know it um you have the talents for it and i just want you to have the space to grow in that way and i can definitely say with me being on the show we have like really attained heights that i don't think he even saw happening mm-hmm. um i think i had a bigger when i got on the show i even think that i had bigger dreams And I would tell him and he'd be like, you think that could happen with the show? Like, I know our first live show and he had booked the space. And I was like, oh, no, the space is too small. Mm. (laughs) And he's just like, really? I was like, no, 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 it's too small. Like for our first show, we can definitely book up. Like we can, the number of people, the guests, we're going to have a lot. And he's just like, I don't know. I was like, no, 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 no. We have the capabilities. And I remember thinking later, like, where did that come from? Like, where was that my ability? You know, because that, that, that confidence in myself didn't sh- wasn't there years ago um which is why it was like that same confidence is what brought me to create inside the pink with Aisha Fanes and it was a a child in my head for a, a like you know a baby in my head for a long time um I just wanted to be able to still tell the stories of black people I wanted to tell the stories of black women in particular because we were be we are being erased from society, and I was just like, and I I was like, I'm not interested in that continuing. I I always say that I am my goal in life is to change the gate the gatekeepers of the game, whatever game that is. I want more black women to be at the helm. I want them to be the ones to make the decisions because I'm like we carry the culture, mm-hmm. and I want us to to be at the forefront. And so inside the pink was was that bringing that that goal to life, and I love doing it loved um unfortunately we had to take a break because life continues Mm -hmm. life happens financial matters happen schedules change uh death happens we had so many different experiences where i was i was almost afraid to come back because i'm like what if people forget us what if people don't want to hear what we have to say anymore because we've been away for so long And it's important to note that you guys are putting up numbers yeah we were doing really well and I just was like I uh, at the and I felt like I was like in college when I had first hit failure I was devastated because this was probably my first and I don't want to call it a failure but it was my the first time I had been hit with something similar Mm -hmm. since college and I was just like well you can't do what you did before you can't run away anymore you have to actually because you're going to fail you're going to deal with situations that you have to redirect yourself and not every fail it's not I would call it a I've come to start calling it a redirection Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a failure so like I'm 
in I'm currently um trying to bring back inside the pink and I know that I'm going to bring it back because it means too much to me yeah. um and I know that it's going to mean an incredible amount to black women who haven't heard their voices somewhere else who haven't heard something that's about them um and I don't want to I don't want to be in a situation where I am interviewing somebody and they're telling me a story about their idea. And it's the same idea I had. And it's just like they had the 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 confidence to to put it out there. And I did it. Mm-hmm. And now they're doing amazing with it. And I'm like, well, what could have happened if it was right. me? I don't want to experience. And I've experienced that, you know, and I don't want to experience that again. So when I you know, that's the self that's the self-serving part of it but like you know overall i wanted to change culture and so and i know inside pink inside the pink will do that run the tape is doing that right now and the grapevine is doing that right now and every platform that i find myself on is changing how we view culture how we view people and i want to continue that with whatever i do what's interesting is you mentioned you know a a redirection but also that sort of fear of a failure or response to that but the audience is giving you something different. The audience mm-hmm. is saying you have something here because we're tuning in mm-hmm. and there are mitigating factors that were preventing that from happening. But when the audience is into it, and we were talking about this a little bit before we pressed record, um, while yes, there's some credence to like consistency is key mm-hmm. and people, you know, we'd like this microwave culture. And if you're not here today, people are just on to something mm-hmm. else. Very quickly, um, yes. However, I feel that when people are on a hiatus, but they have built that core audience of like rabid fans that are loyal and you've been out there just mm-hmm. in a different, different mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do come back, I feel like they're going to be with it, even if it comes back in a different format or a different sort of platform mm-hmm. or what have you. No, I mm-hmm. I believe. And that's the thing I think I had to I've so I've changed a lot of things concerning me. Like I've changed the language that I speak. I've mm-hmm. changed like, you know, how I approach things. A lot of times it's like, oh, I like I can't do this um, because it's failing. I can't I can't touch it. And that comes and I realized for a long time it came from fear from being from watching my father fail many times. But what I didn't pick up was the fact that he would continue on to a next, like he would right. continue into a next project because the failure was just a jump start for the next idea. And I realized that my father never saw these things as failures. He saw them as redirections. Mm-hmm. He saw them as like, okay, well, I need to change or tweak this or move this around. And there was always customers. Something that I never, and you know, and I never realized until I got older and I really sat down and thought about like where, you know, in therapy, of course, because. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shout out to therapy. We're a huge you, proponents on this you, show. As yes. you get older and you're mm-hmm. like, and then especially the experience that I had with my parents, like, you know, why I love them to death. And I was like, I have to think about, I have mm-hmm. to work through some things. Um, it made me realize that a lot of this fear wasn't my own. Mm-hmm. Um, because as my, your parents get older, you, they also, the things that they did in their past, they, they don't want you to do it. Right. So while my father was like great with, you know, doing things and starting off for again, he wasn't interested in that being in my life. And, um, and I get it. And so, you know, as I try to, um, basically I don't, I want, I've, I, I don't want to talk in a negative mm-hmm. I'm I'm a realist. I believe that like I speak things as they are. I don't I'm not the eternal optimist. I'm not the toxic optimist either. But I don't want to speak negativity into things that haven't started yet. And I think I was for a long time I was doing that. I was um immediately assuming the worst. Yeah. And instead of thinking like what if it is okay? What if it the works? And if it doesn't, what are your what's 
why wouldn't there be another option? And I think in the past couple of years, especially because my life has changed drastically personally, like there's so many different things that has happened where I'm just like, where did I go wrong? But then like, (laughs) but then at the same time, I think in that it's given me space to grow where I can be a better communicator for and give to the world what I want to give to them. So, you know, and I've spent the last year not only like, so I divorced myself from my ideas of my parents mm-hmm. and I spent the last year, like kind of divorcing my idea divorcing myself from the ideas of religion and how it's mm. been presented to me. And in that I have found a lot more peace and, um, and that's how, that's kind of how it sh- allowed me to shift my mindset because I was living very much in a world of, uh, brim and firestone. Yes. A brimstone and fire. Yeah, fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone where like if you did something wrong, you're going to be punished. And I've definitely moved myself from that. And it's just given me space to be like, if it doesn't go the way that you think it should or if it does fail, you have options. Right. And I think that point you brought up um, speaks to cultural issues, Mm -hmm. religious issues, et cetera. We we say that we operate in grace. Um, but because in so many instances, the way we sort of paint mm-hmm. Christianity or, you know, whatever version of that you subscribe to and the way we, we paint our lives as black people, you got one shot. Right. Everything is like one shot. And if you fail at that shot, the whole thing is caving. Everything in on crumbles. Um, and I think we need to do a better job of extending grace to ourselves mm-hmm. and to other people. Right. To, to find their way. And it's why one of the reasons I love doing this show, mm-hmm. because um, we've started to have honest conversations about trying things that don't work or starting on a path and doing all this work on this lane and realizing mm, not for me. I want to move over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think our white counterparts are given the space to do more often than we are. Do you do you get is it okay if I bring up another podcast on this? Sure, okay. go for it. Do you mm-hmm. listen to how I um, built this? Yes. One of my favorite mm-hmm. podcasts, but also infuriating. Yes. We we have <laughs> talked about this. We have talked about this ad nauseum off the air. We brought the show up on the air. But I, I had to stop, I had to take a break for a bit. But there was yes. a point where I listened to that show every single week. It was it's infuriating <laughs> because it's like um I, recently I listened to Luke's Lobster and mm-hmm. Grew up in the lobster business. The guy who created it grew up in the lobster business. His father gave them lobsters to start the business. And I was just like, and think about how expensive lobsters are. And his father had like a lobster factory where they like um, got the meat out and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Father would drive down from Maine and bring it to them in New York. And then he stayed and helped them work. And they didn't have any workers. They just had themselves. And I just remember thinking like, my father doesn't own a lobster factory. <laughs> right. <laughs> my father doesn't own these things. My 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 mom doesn't know, you know, uh, she doesn't know a, a Tory Birch to like mm-hmm. help me start off. She doesn't know a Kate Spade. She doesn't, you know, I don't have a husband that can sit in the house with me and create bags like <laughs> and then take I don't have like those things don't exist. And I was, and the crazy thing is, is like many people talk about how black women are like the, the highest, the you know, the, the biggest number of uh, entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and business owners growing in the country. Well, a lot of people don't realize the number, what this, well, a lot of people don't realize the experience behind the numbers, yes. how these businesses don't actually grow past like, you know, a one woman job, mm-hmm. um, how it doesn't actually create jobs because they don't make enough money to do it. And how like a lot of times it's kind of like touted out as a form of diversity for banks when yes. in reality, like, like they're not even giving them the loans that actually can sustain their businesses. And then you go on and I listen to how do I build this? And people are truly making millions. And they're like, 
Well, it started with a small loan of $50,000 and I'm just my like, parents. <laughs> or, or like there's people who are like, you know, they they kept getting loan after loan after loan mm-hmm. after failing. Like there are some people who are like, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur because I knew I couldn't work in an office. And I was just like, yeah, I can't work in an office either, but I don't have that choice. I don't have, because um, I don't know. There is a there was an article recently on Zora Mag, which is on Medium, and mm-hmm. it was called From Pet to Threat. And it's basically about the experience of black women in the office mm-hmm. where they start off as a pet where everybody likes them. And then all of a sudden, just like everything shifts. Yes. Nobody likes you or like everything that you do is a problem. All of a sudden you're not moving up. You're not um you don't get any promotions. You seem to, your job seems to be all of a sudden be in a danger. And it's basically that everybody in your job or the people are, or your superiors recognize your talent and recognize. And now because of that, mm-hmm. you have become a threat to them because you're not supposed to be this talented. You're not supposed to be this great. Yep. And so they do everything in their power to minimize you in the workspace. Some even go as far as firing. And I remember reading this and I was like, it's not even conducive for us to be in the workforce, Mm -hmm. but we don't have a choice. (laughs) And you have people who can literally say, I didn't even want to be an, I didn't even want to work in the office. So I just got this money from my parents and (laughs) failed and got some more money and failed again and got some more money. And we struck gold this time. My parents would have told me to kick rocks. <laughs> because I was like, my parents are like, you have six other siblings that we have to worry about. Right. There's no way we're going to give you a hundred thousand for anything. For any reason. They're like, we don't even have a hundred thousand. Like all of us, like all my siblings are, we all took school loans. Like there's like, mm-hmm. you know, my father actually, cause we all went to um, private school. By the time my last two sisters went to, got into high school, my father was just like, so we're no longer doing the private school thing. Wow. Charter schools became a thing. He was like, everybody's going to charter school. <laughs> and my little sister, she's in public school. Like she's, she's a, she's a sophomore at mm-hmm. Newark Tech, which is something that my father refused adamantly when I was in school. But now he's just like, no, the schools are fine. You know, <laughs> like hit different after yeah, four or five Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, he, but it's true. Like the, he really underestimated the Newark school system, mm-hmm. particularly their magnet schools. And so, but yeah, I don't have that space. Um, and I love that show and I love the hope and inspiration it offers. But um, it also doesn't offer reality sometimes, right. particularly. And I always and I always say this about the show, how much I love it. But there's a reason why there's not a lot of black entrepreneurs on that show, mm-hmm. because they don't have that story. And because of the reality is that it's hard to find us. Yes. So absolutely. And find us at that level of success where right. it makes for an appealing story for their audience. Right. Because yeah. I think Carol's daughter was on it. The mm-hmm. guy who created FUBU. Uh, and the woman who has like one of the largest, most successful staffing firms. I yes. Her name. She was on there. Yeah. She, that's her. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, Logic was there, but he's biracial. So that's mm-hmm. a little, and that was so, it was such an odd episode to me. But um, yeah, like the, like it's so, our presence there is so minimal. And I'm just like, I Roz, like look for us because then you'll get a real, a real story of what it is to be an entrepreneur in America because it's way different than having, you know, your parents to catch you when you fall in these situations. Right. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of, of falling and the not so pretty parts of life, tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I don't know if this, oh God. <laughs> just go with your gut. <laughs> I want to say that when there was a time when I got, it was a summertime in the grapevine and I was going through, I had experienced a really horrible family issue. I came to set crying. Mm -hmm. Like I went to, I remember going, getting there, saying hey to everybody, going into the bathroom, sobbing, got my makeup done. 
And the whole day I was going back and forth between the bathroom and cry and then come back out, do the panel, go back into the bathroom and cry. Some of the best episodes I ever shot, though. Wow. <laughs> and um, not to get too into it, the situation that happened, but I it was something that had devastated me. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to I wanted to not show up that day. I wanted to not um, do anything. And I remember two, two, three years later, so I think this happened in 2000 and we were 2020. I want to say this happened in 2018. So two years. And I was telling Ashley about it, Ashley and Doug Rubenstein from the show. And he was like, you were crying that day? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, you were crying? I was like, yo, I cried the whole day. Then I cried on the way home. And I would just go to the bathroom, fix my makeup. I'd come back out and I'd shoot. And I was, and I, and I think I did that because I was like, this is how life is. Mm-hmm. Um, none of this is going to stop. And I'm sure like, because Ashley and I are friends and she's also a human being. Like she understands that like things happen. She's had her own moments. And it's like, she she would have absolutely understood if I had to take a day, you know? And, but I knew that I couldn't, I knew I couldn't, I, I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted I love this so much that whatever it is, like I have to work through it. I have to get past it. Um, I'll cry when I get home. Mm-hmm. I'll cry in like the moments that I have an opportunity. And that's what I did. And I had some really amazing moments because I and it's probably because I was so determined to stay there. Yeah. So um, that's happened once or twice after. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I'm not interested in in giving up because. I have to deal with life. I have to deal with what I want to do. Like I have to, life goes on. It never stops. It never, it never. Even those moments where you wanted to like, just you just need to pause so you mm-hmm. can breathe a little. It doesn't. So you have to breathe while moving. Right. So what's next for Uchechi? A lot more writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope to find, I hope to, get myself published a couple more times this year. It's my goal to find myself in bigger pub- publications, not for money because they are funny with how they pay. True. Because <laughs> that net 30, net, net 90 mm-hmm. <laughs> is not it's fun. Serious, yeah. But um, I want to get my writing out there. I want to be recognized as a writer. Um, it's great to be seen as like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Content creator is fine. Um, maybe like a social personality I don't know but I'm not interested in being a media influencer which is I think is great and that's a lane for for other people but like I want to be known for um writing I want to know for the work that I do I want to know I want to be known for um breaking down something so intricately that you're like this changes my mind completely so um I want to do things like that I want to I'm working really hard I'm bringing back inside the pink um and I I want to I want Run the Tape to grow. I'm working, we're working really hard on that. We're working really hard on kind of being permanent in the hip hop culture. I want to make sure that is my vehicle to protect, like, you know, as somebody who loves black music and black culture and hip hop is essentially black, is a, is a huge part of black culture, black American culture. I want to protect it and, and Run the Tape is my is my vehicle to do so. And of course, I want to grow with the grapevine. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been, it, it was a door to everything it essentially changed my life Um, I'm always grateful for Ashley and Donovan and um, Amanda for seeing something particularly Ashley for seeing something in me that I still had not seen Mm -hmm. and giving me the space to um, show the world Mm -hmm. so you know what I I, I sense I, I sense that you've found your voice, but there's a whole other dimension and depth to it that hasn't been re- revealed yet. And I'm excited to see where you go with it. I agree. Because mm-hmm. um, like I said, life 
So like, yeah, sure. My parents, that's cool. But, <laughs> but life has changed so much in the space in the time that like so much mm-hmm. and, um, it changed how I, um, how I express myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it changes what I think about certain things and it has definitely opened. It has like, there's, it has brought open uh, to the forefront, another layer that I didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm excited to, um, cause I don't force myself to like, to like dig deep to like look for it. I allow it to come up in yeah. itself and then it's coming up and I'm, I'm excited as well. And shout out to Aisha K. Fane. Yes, shout out Kuna, to former guests of the show. Shout out to my girls. They're like, we've all like, <laughs> no, we've all like created like a family mm-hmm. and they have been, I always tell them that they, in the moments where they didn't realize it, they saved me and mm-hmm. they saved my life because um, I'm not sure where I would be mm-hmm. if I didn't find a space that I felt belonged to me. So, well, listen. I'm going to be waiting to hear what else you have to say, because there's a lot in there for sure. There's a lot. More absolutely. In there. Absolutely. Um, in the interim, where can people find you online? So they can everybody can find me at uh, Words by Uchechi. So that's W-O-R-D-S-B-Y-U-C-H-E-C-H-I on Twitter and on Instagram. What's funny is that for a long time, I, my social media was super private mm-hmm. and then everybody's screaming at me. Please open your social media. That struggle. I'm in it right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So that's it's open. So feel free to follow me. Um, sometimes I say things on on Twitter. Um, if I say so myself, I think I'm pretty smart on Twitter. Yeah. Um, yeah. That you can also find me on Run the Tape Pod on, on all social medias as well, too. Um, something happened to the Inside the Pink um, Instagram I have a feeling that somebody like reported us some random person. Mm-hmm. So I'm rebuilding up our social media. So, but yeah, but where's Biochechi is my, is my personal. So you can find me there. So well, thank you for coming in today with your fly boots. Oh, and thank all. you. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I really love doing this. You were great. Um, so to our, our listeners, follow Uchechi, read her words. You've got articles out there published. I do, on Medium. You can also find yeah. me on Medium as well. Just look up Uchechi Shinyara. So only two are there, but mm-hmm. you know, as as the year progresses, we'll see more. Got it. So make sure you check out her work online. Always support The Grapevine mm-hmm. um, and other podcasts like Run the Tape and look for Inside the Pink to yes. come back for sure. You can do it. They're waiting. No, I'm absolutely. I like. I'm. It means too much for sure. (laughs) And as always, make sure you like, share, subscribe to this podcast, and remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 